Chapter One of Celebrated Crimes, Volume One by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Borgias, Chapter One. Towards the end of the fifteenth century, that is to say, at the epoch when our history opens, the piazza of St. Peter's at Rome was far from presenting so noble an aspect as that which is offered in our own day to anyone who approaches it by the Piazza dei Rusticucci. In fact, the Basilica of Constantine existed no longer, while that of Michelangelo, the masterpiece of thirty popes, which cost the labor of three centuries and the expense of two hundred and sixty millions, existed not yet. The ancient edifice, which had lasted for eleven hundred and forty-five years, had been threatening to fall in about 1440, and Nicholas V, artistic forerunner of Julius II and Leo X, had had it pulled down, together with the temple of Probus Anicius, which adjoined it. In their place, he had had the foundations of a new temple laid by the architects Rossellini and Battista Alberti. But some years later, after the death of Nicholas V, Paul II, the Venetian, had not been able to give more than 5,000 crowns to continue the project of his predecessor, and thus the building was arrested when it had scarcely risen above the ground, and presented the appearance of a stillborn edifice, even sadder than that of a ruin. As to the piazza itself, it had not yet, as the reader will understand from the foregoing explanation, either the fine colonnade of Bernini, or the dancing fountains, or that Egyptian obelisk which, according to Pliny, was set up by the pharaoh at Heliopolis, and transferred to Rome by Caligula, who set it up in Nero's circus, where it remained till 1586. Now, as Nero's circus was situated on the very ground where St. Peter's now stands, and the base of this obelisk covered the actual site where the vestry now is, it looked like a gigantic needle shooting up from the middle of truncated columns, walls of unequal height, and half-carved stones. On the right of this building, a ruin from its cradle, arose the Vatican, a splendid Tower of Babel, to which all the celebrated architects of the Roman school contributed their work for a thousand years. At this epoch the two magnificent chapels did not exist, nor the twelve great halls. The two-and-twenty courts, the thirty staircases, and the two thousand bedchambers, for Pope Sixtus V, the sublime swineherd, who did so many things in a five years' reign, had not yet been able to add the immense building which on the eastern side towers above the court of St. Damasius. Still, it was truly the old sacred edifice, with its venerable associations, in which Charlemagne received hospitality when he was crowned emperor by Pope Leo III. All the same, on the 9th of August, 1492, the whole of Rome, from the people's gates of the Colosseum and from the baths of Diocletian to the castle of St. Angelo, seemed to have made an appointment on this piazza. The multitude thronging it was so great as to overflow into all the neighboring streets, which started from this center like the rays of a star. The crowds of people, looking like a motley moving carpet, were climbing up into the basilica, grouping themselves upon the stones, hanging on the columns, standing up against the walls. They entered by the doors of houses and reappeared at the windows, so numerous and so densely packed, that one might have said each window was walled up with heads. Now all this multitude had its eyes fixed on one single point in the Vatican, for in the Vatican was the conclave, and as Innocent VIII had been dead for sixteen days, the conclave was in the act of electing a pope. Rome is the town of elections, since her foundation down to our own day, that is to say, in the course of nearly twenty-six centuries, she has constantly elected her kings, consuls, tribunes, emperors, and popes. Thus, Rome, during the days of conclave, appears to be attacked by a strange fever which drives everyone to the Vatican or to Monte Cavallo, according as the scarlet-robed assembly is held in one or the other of these two palaces. It is, in fact, because the raising up of a new pontiff is a great event for everybody, 
for according to the average established in the period between St. Peter and Gregory the Sixteenth, every pope lasts about eight years, and these eight years, according to the character of the man who is elected, are a period of either tranquillity or of disorder, of justice or of venality, of peace or of war. Never perhaps since the day when the first successor of St. Peter took his seat on the pontifical throne until the interregnum which now occurred had so great an agitation been shown as there was at this moment, when, as we have shown, all these people were thronging on the piazza of St. Peter and in the streets which led to it. It is true that this was not without reason, for Innocent VIII, who was called the father of his people because he had added to his subjects eight sons and the same number of daughters, had, as we have said, after a living a life of self-indulgence, just died, after a death-struggle, during which, if the journal of Stefano and Fessiora may be believed, two hundred and twenty murders were committed in the streets of Rome. The authority had then dissolved in the customary way upon the Cardinal Camerengo, who, during the interregnum, had sovereign powers. But as he had been obliged to fulfill all the duties of his office, that is, to get money coined in his name and bearing his arms, to take the fisherman's ring from the finger of the dead pope, to dress, shave, and paint him, to have the corpse embalmed, to lower the coffin after nine days' obsequies into the provisional niche where the last deceased pope was to remain until his successor comes to take his place and consign him to his final tomb. Lastly, as he had been obliged to wall up the door of the conclave and the window of the balcony from which the pontifical election is proclaimed, he had not had a single moment for busying himself with the police, so that the assassinations had continued in goodly fashion, and there were loud cries for an energetic hand, which should make all these swords and all these daggers retire into their sheaths. Now the eyes of this multitude were fixed, as we have said, upon the Vatican, and particularly upon one chimney, from which would come the first signal, when suddenly, at the moment of the Ave Maria, that is to say, at the hour when the day begins to decline, great cries went up from all the crowd, mixed with bursts of laughter, a discordant murmur of threats and raillery, the cause being that they had just perceived at the top of the chimney a thin smoke, which seemed like a light cloud to go up perpendicularly into the sky. This smoke announced that Rome was still without a master, and that the world still had no pope, for this was the smoke of the voting tickets which were being burned, a proof that the cardinals had not yet come to an agreement. Scarcely had this smoke appeared to vanish almost immediately, when all the innumerable crowd, knowing well that there was nothing else to wait for, and that all was said and done until ten o'clock the next morning, the time when the cardinals had their first voting, went off in a tumult of noisy joking, just as they would after the last rocket of a firework display, so that at the end of one minute nobody was there where a quarter of an hour before there had been an excited crowd, except a few curious laggards who, living in the neighborhood or on the very piazza itself, were less in a hurry than the rest to get back to their homes. Again, little by little, these last groups insensibly diminished, for half-past nine had just struck, and at this hour the streets of Rome began already to be far from safe. Then, after these groups, followed some solitary passer-by, hurrying his steps. One after another the doors were closed, one after another the windows were darkened. At last, when ten o'clock struck, with the single exception of one window in the Vatican where a lamp might be seen keeping obstinate vigil, all the houses, piazzas, and streets were plunged in the deepest obscurity. At this moment a man wrapped in a cloak stood up like a ghost against one of the columns of the uncompleted basilica, and gliding slowly and carefully among the stones which were lying about round the foundations of the new church, advanced as far as the fountain which formed the centre of the piazza, erected in the very place where the obelisk is now set up, of which we have spoken already. When he reached this spot he stopped, doubly concealed by the darkness of the night and by the shade of the monument, 
and after looking around him to see if he were really alone, drew his sword, and with its point rapping three times on the pavement of the piazza, each time made the sparks fly. This signal, for signal it was, was not lost. The last lamp, which still kept vigil in the Vatican, went out, and at the same instant an object thrown out of the window fell a few paces off from the young man in the cloak. He, guided by the silvery sound it had made in touching the flags, lost no time in laying his hands upon it in spite of the darkness, and when he had it in his possession hurried quickly away. Thus the unknown walked without turning round halfway along the Borgo Vecchio, but there he turned to the right and took a street at the other end, of which was set up a Madonna with a lamp. He approached the light and drew from his pocket the object he had picked up, which was nothing else than a Roman crown-piece, but this crown unscrewed, and in a cavity hollowed in its thickness enclosed a letter, which the man to whom it was addressed began to read, at the risk of being recognized, so great was his haste to know what it contained. We say at the risk of being recognized, for in his eagerness the recipient of this nocturnal missive had thrown back the hood of his cloak, and as his head was wholly within the luminous circle cast by the lamp, it was easy to distinguish in the light the head of a handsome young man of about five or six and twenty, dressed in a purple doublet, slashed at the shoulder and elbow to let the shirt come through, and wearing on his head a cap of the same color with a long black feather falling to his shoulder. It is true that he did not stand there long, for scarcely had he finished the letter, or rather the note, which he had just received in so strange and mysterious a manner, when he replaced it in its silver receptacle, and readjusting his cloak so as to hide all the lower part of his face, resumed his walk with a rapid step, crossed Borgio San Spirito, and took the street of the Longara, which he followed as far as the church of Regina Celi. When he arrived at this place, he gave three rapid knocks on the door of a house of good appearance, which immediately opened. Then, slowly mounting the stairs, he entered a room where two women were awaiting him with an impatience so unconcealed that both as they saw him exclaimed together, "'Well, Francesco, what news?' "'Good news, my mother,' "'Good, my sister,' replied the young man, kissing the one and giving his hand to the other. "'Our father has gained three votes today, but he still needs six to have the majority.' "'Then is there no means of buying them?' cried the elder of the two women, while the younger, instead of speaking, asked him with a look. "'Certainly, my mother, certainly,' replied the young man. "'And it is just about that that my father has been thinking.' He is giving Cardinal Orsini his palace at Rome, and his two castles of Monticello and Soriano, to Cardinal Carlana his abbey of Subiaca. He gives Cardinal St. Angelo, the bishopric of Porto, with the furniture and cellar, to the Cardinal of Parma, the town of Nepi, to the Cardinal of Genoa, the church of Santa Maria in Violata, and lastly, Cardinal Savelli, the church of Santa Maria Maggiore, and the town of Civita Castellana. As to Cardinal Aschiano Sforza, he knows already that the day before yesterday we sent to his house four mules laden with silver and plate, and out of this treasure he has engaged to give five thousand ducats to the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice. "'But how should we get the others to know the intentions of Rodrigo?' asked the elder of the two women. "'My father has provided for everything, and proposes an easy method. You know, my mother, with what sort of ceremonial the Cardinal's dinner is carried in.' "'Yes, on a litter, in a large basket with the arms of the cardinal, for whom the meal is prepared.' "'My father has bribed the bishop who examines it. Tomorrow is a feast day. To the cardinals Orsini, Colonna, Savelli, Sant'Angelo, and cardinals of Parma and of Genoa, chickens will be sent for hot meat, and each chicken will contain a deed of gift duly drawn up, made by me in my father's name of the houses, palaces, or churches, which are destined for each.' "'Capital!' 
said the elder of the two women, now I am certain all will go well. And by the grace of God, added the younger with a strangely mocking smile, our father will be Pope. Oh, it will be a fine day for us, cried Francesco. And for Christendom, replied his sister with a still more ironical expression. Lucrezia, Lucrezia, said the mother, you do not deserve the happiness which is coming to us. What does that matter if it comes all the same? Besides, you know the proverb, mother, large families are blessed of the Lord, and still more so our family, which is so patriarchal. At the same time she cast on her brother a look so wanton that the young man blushed under it. But, as at the moment he had to think of other things than his illicit loves, he ordered that four servants should be awakened, and while they were getting armed to accompany him, he drew up and signed the six deeds of gift which were to be carried the next day to the cardinals. For, not wishing to be seen at their houses, he thought he would profit by the night-time to carry them himself to certain persons in his confidence who would have them passed in, as had been arranged at the dinner-hour. Then, when the deeds were quite ready and the servants also, Francesco went out to them, leaving the two women to dream golden dreams of their future greatness. From the first dawn of the day the people hurried anew, as ardent and interested as on the evening before, to the piazza of the Vatican, where at the ordinary time, that is, at ten o'clock in the morning, the smoke rose again as usual, evoking laughter and murmuring, as it announced that none of the cardinals had secured the majority. A report, however, began to spread about that the chances were divided between three cardinals, who were Rodrigo Borgia, Giuliano Delta Rovera, and Ascanio Sforza. For the people, as yet knew nothing of the four mules laden with plate and silver which had been led to Sforza's house, by reason of which he had given up his own votes to his rival. In the midst of the agitation excited in the crowd by this new report, a solemn chanting was heard. It proceeded from a procession led by the Cardinal Camerlengo, with the object of obtaining from heaven the speedy election of a pope. This procession, starting from the church of Arrakjeli to the capital, was to make stations before the principal Madonnas and the most frequented churches. As soon as the silver crucifix was perceived which went in front, the most profound silence prevailed, and everyone fell on his knees. Thus a supreme calm followed the tumult and uproar which had been heard a few minutes before, and which, at each appearance of the smoke, had assumed a more threatening character. There was a shrewd suspicion that the procession, as well as having a religious end in view, had a political object also, and that its influence was intended to be as great on earth as in heaven. In any case, if such had been the design of the Cardinal Camerlengo, he had not deceived himself, and the effect was what he desired. When the procession had gone past, the laughing and joking continued, but the cries and threats had completely ceased. The whole day passed thus, for in Rome nobody works. You are either a cardinal or a lackey, and you live nobody knows how. The crowd was still extremely numerous when, towards two o'clock in the afternoon, another procession, which had quite as much power of provoking noise as the first of imposing silence, traversed in its turn the piazza of St. Peter's. This was the dinner procession. The people received it with the usual bursts of laughter, without suspecting, for all their irreverence, that this procession, more efficacious than the former, had just settled the election of the new pope. The hour of the Ave Maria came as on the evening before, but as on the evening before, the waiting of the whole day was lost, for, as half-past eight struck, the daily smoke reappeared at the top of the chimney, but when at the same moment rumors which came from inside of the Vatican were spread abroad, announcing that in all probability the election would take place the next day, the good people preserved their patience. Besides, it had been very hot that day, and they were so broken with fatigue and roasted by the sun, these dwellers in shade and idleness, that they had no strength left to complain. 
The morning of the next day, which was the 11th of August, 1492, arose stormy and dark. This did not hinder the multitude from thronging the piazzas, streets, doors, houses, churches. Moreover, this disposition of the weather was a real blessing from heaven, for if there were heat, at least there would be no sun. Toward nine o'clock, threatening storm clouds were heaped up over all the Trastevere. But to this crowd, what mattered, rain, lightning, or thunder? They were preoccupied with a concern of a very different nature. They were waiting for their pope. A promise had been made for them today, and it could be seen by the manner of all, that if the day should pass without an election taking place, the end of it might very well be a riot. Therefore, in proportion as the time advanced, the agitation grew greater. Nine o'clock, half-past nine, a quarter to ten struck, without anything happening to confirm or destroy their hopes. At last the first stroke of ten was heard, all eyes turned towards the chimney. Ten o'clock struck slowly, each stroke vibrating in the heart of the multitude. At last the tenth stroke trembled, then vanished shuddering into space, and a great cry breaking simultaneously from a hundred thousand breasts followed the silence. Non fe fumo! There is no smoke! In other words, we have a pope! At this moment the rain began to fall, but no one paid any attention to it, so great were the transports of joy and impatience among all the people. At last a little stone was detached from the walled window, which gave on the balcony and upon which all eyes were fixed. A general shout saluted its fall. Little by little the aperture grew larger, and in a few minutes it was large enough to allow a man to come out on the balcony. The cardinal, Asiano Sforza, appeared, but at the moment when he was on the point of coming out, frightened by the rain and the lightning, he hesitated an instant, and finally drew back. Immediately the multitude in their turn broke out like a tempest into cries, curses, howls, threatening to tear down the Vatican and to go and seek their pope themselves. At this noise, Cardinal Zwarza, more terrified by the popular storm than by the storm in the heavens, advanced on the balcony, and between two thunderclaps, in a moment of silence, astonishing to anyone who had just heard the clamor that went before, made the following proclamation. I announce to you a great joy, the most eminent and most reverend Signor Rodrigo Lenzuolo Borgia, Archbishop of Valencia, Cardinal Deacon of San Nicolao in Carcere, Vice-Chancellor of the Church, has now been elected a page and has assumed the name of Alexander the Sixth. The news of this nomination was received with strange joy. Rodrigo Borgia had the reputation of a dissolute man, it is true, but libertinism had mounted the throne with Sixtus IV and Innocent VIII, so that for the Romans there was nothing new in the singular situation of a pope with a mistress and five children. The great thing for the moment was that the power fell into strong hands, and it was more important for the tranquillity of Rome that the new pope inherited the sword of St. Paul than that he inherited the keys of St. Peter. And so... In the feasts that were given on this occasion, the dominant character was much more warlike than religious, and would have appeared rather to suit with the election of some young conqueror than the exaltation of an old pontiff. There was no limit to the pleasantries and prophetic epigrams on the name of Alexander, which for the second time seemed to promise the Romans the empire of the world, and the same evening, in the midst of brilliant illuminations and bonfires which seemed to turn the town into a lake of flame, the following epigram was read amid the acclamation of the people. Rome under Caesar's rule in ancient story, at home and o'er the world victorious trod. But Alexander still extends his glory. Caesar was man, but Alexander God. As to the new pope, scarcely had he completed the formalities of etiquette, which his exaltation imposed upon him, and paid to each man the price of his simony, when, from the height of the Vatican, he cast his eyes upon Europe, 
a vast political game of chess, which he cherished the hope of directing at the will of his own genius. End of chapter 1 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia